we need to divorce <laughs> our identities from like how much money something costs. We are people. Yeah. Human beings are not worth money. That's yeah. That's that's how you get to some dangerous shit. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> So, Ellie, what is your experience with diamond rings? <laughs> I love the face you're making right now. I'm smiling wider. I'm like Cheshire Cat times 10. <laughs> my experience with diamond rings, like my knowledge or my actual experience? All of the above. But I guess let's start with what, if any, role diamond rings has played in your life, your own engagement. I think as listeners know, you are married. Flex. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and um, I don't know, maybe your parents' rings, if you remember anything about that. Well, my engagement ring, we picked it out basically together. And it's very simple. It has diamonds on it, but they're very small. And they just kind of go around a band. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel the need to spend like an exorbitant amount on a ring. I think it would make me anxious. I'd be walking around like I'm about to get mugged. Mm -hmm. And so I, it was just not my style. But I, I don't know how much engagement rings are a thing in Spain. I think now they are. But like growing up, I didn't see women wearing big diamond rings walking around. Yeah. I was recently speaking with our friend Lauda, who was telling me that I think there's this jeweler named like Swadith or something. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that's sort of like the standard. And we were looking at it online and we were able to, as with many retail websites, filter by different characteristics of a ring. Mm -hmm. So whether you wanted a solitaire or a three stone or whatever. Another thing you could filter by was diamond weight or carat. And I think on this website, it went from 0.6 to 0 0.7, 0 0.8 to 0.9. And those were the four options. And so even that is very different, I feel, from the American industry where people, at least depending on like your socioeconomic class, if you're looking for a diamond, they will often exceed that 0.9 carat weight. Mm. So I don't know if that's just like part of its newness and popularity but i did i did notice that when we were looking at the spanish jeweler website of oh that looks just like different than if you went to i don't know like k or <laughs> tiffany yeah. like they would offer things above that one carat weight yeah i'm, I'm excited on this journey because i know you have more experience even now when you were saying the point seven whatever i was like I, that means absolutely nothing to me <laughs> um and I remember this like video, mm -hmm. I think my husband sent it to you as well, that it's like about the history of diamond engagement rings and how it's like this whole capitalist marketing ploy or whatever. And that yes. like, diamonds aren't actually that rare or that valuable and that we've just been duped. That was so funny because at the time, Andrew and I were talking about engagement and looking at rings and you and I weren't quite as close then, I don't think as we are now, but either way... I think the two of you were like, there was no question in anyone's mind. Oh, at least in Santiago, we're getting married. Obviously. Are they already married? Question mark. Like they're <laughs> a match made in heaven. But I hadn't heard anything explicit about your engagement timeline. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he sent me that video, everything I was saying about the rings that Andrew and I were looking at 
Santiago had some knowledge. He was like, oh, I always opt for half eternity and not full eternity. And he was talking about like the durability. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, this guy just knows a lot about jewelry. Who knows the hell why it didn't tip me off? Like, oh, they're about to get engaged like next month. <laughs> I was like, like wow, he's just man. really into it. Honestly, if anyone was just going to have random knowledge for no reason about something like that, it would be Sunday. Like, oh, I read this book like two years ago and I remember every detail yeah he does have some ring knowledge I prefer to have never been shared with me if you have a weak stomach please don't look up degloving but if you're interested look it up (laughs) there are some things I wish he would keep to himself for sure but he does yes he does come in with random knowledge so it didn't quite tip me off the way with anyone else it would have not the (laughs) degloving yeah But okay, so I thought we would kind of go back in time and do sort of like a quick view of the early history of diamonds and diamonds in jewelry. And then we can go through in much more depth the sort of like Western capitalist market in the last, let's say, like 100 to 100 years of transcontinental diamonds trading and all that stuff. And then we can just kind of talk about going forward where we think maybe the industry is headed, what values our generation and the one coming up behind us is kind of keeping in mind when making purchases, the ethics and environmental impact of it all, that sort of stuff. I'm so excited because I I know that there's a lot of that there are a lot of questions around the ethics of Mm -hmm. diamonds, but I don't I don't really know anything about it. So take me through it. Yeah, I thought I knew a lot about it and it was the tip of the iceberg but the word diamond (laughs) we're starting at the very beginning first there was a big bang I know I was about to say not that far back but apparently it comes from the Greek word atomis sort of like the word adamant it means just like unbreakable effectively Mm. and I thought that was cool well named right but okay so between 400 and 300 BC was the first like recorded and written knowledge of diamonds that was appearing in Sanskrit texts. And they sort of like describe the diamond as the jewel above all others. And in general, I think since then, there's evidence of it being sort of spiritually important to different cultures throughout various centuries. There's an early reference, apparently, to diamonds in the Bible. Oh. I wouldn't know, <laughs> but... <laughs> It, this is Jeremiah 17.1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. Then for hundreds of years, diamonds were apparently used as a form of currency and symbol and power and status. And it wasn't until 1074 CE when the Queen of Hungary had her crown decorated with diamonds that diamonds were used as a form of jewelry. Mm. So it's still pretty long time ago. But the first recorded story that we know of where a diamond ring was used in an engagement was in 1477. So like 400 years later, the Archduke Maximilian of Austria gives Mary of Burgundy's father a diamond ring. Basically, in a, like along with a letter asking for her hand in marriage. Gives the father? Yeah, it's disputed. Like, did she give it? Did he give it to her? Or was it, like, to the dad? Because he sent it along with a letter asking for her hand in marriage. 
And a lot of people kind of try to drum up the romance of it all. Like, oh, he just, he fell madly in love with her and then sent her a diamond ring. And then in reality, people are saying, well, actually, no, he was interested in this land deal with Bruges. And Bruges had also just perfected the art of diamond cutting. So it was this like political tactic like there's it's kind of a disputed history but wow theoretically these are the two players where the first engagement ring was exchanged wow i'm just picturing these land barons with like a different diamond ring on each finger for each like daughter that gets <laughs> married from their son-in-laws <laughs> yeah no they're dripped out <laughs> um no, but it's it's definitely a disputed history and like it has been of course co-opted by major diamond cartels today and this one guy who we'll talk about a lot more later, Stephen Lucier or Lucier, he is clearly so defensive of the reputation that his company De Beers has because when talking about this Archduke Maximilian of Austria and Mary of Burgundy. He's like, no marketer told him to do that. He just did it as a sign that their relationship was precious. It's like, <laughs> okay, relax. No one said that he was marketed toward. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> but that was like the first engagement ring, as we said. And now in the US, 97% of couples exchange rings upon engagement. And the vast majority of the gemstones are diamonds. Justice for the ruby. Y'all... As at least said, I do love talking about jewelry. And <laughs> rubies are very, very high on the most hardness scale. That scale is just to determine how effectively like durable a gemstone is. The rubies are extremely high. Get yourself a ruby. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that it isn't the other way around, that we're not using like a stone that's actually really fragile and precious. And like a mm. diamond, you can just yeet that thing across the room and nothing's gonna happen to it i know and so i'm surprised that it isn't thought of as not as fancy or precious a thing because it's just this hard rock like what why wouldn't it be some like soft thing that you need to really take care of and be precious with ellie you're asking a really good question which is why are diamonds valuable <laughs> Yeah. What is what is value? What is it? Why do we ascribe value to hardness and not softness? Mm -hmm. I, I, it's all made up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. But currently, yeah, we do much more highly assigned value to stones like diamonds than we would, say, a pearl or an opal. I mean, I'm sure there's also something to do with, like, the commonality of those things as well. But those are examples of just, like, softer jewelry adornments basically mm. but so i want to talk about how we got from archduke maximilian to 97 percent of u.s couples exchanging engagement rings mm -hmm. as we said diamonds were kind of like in the ether for a long time there's written evidence of that but in terms of like our modern conception of diamond jewelry i think we need to go to the late 19th century where these diamond rushes begin in Africa. So in Sierra Leone, for example, there's a decent amount of diamonds that can be found by like sifting and panning in riverbeds, in streams. But then in, I think it was South Africa, these kimberlites, which is named for the region, but these kimberlites are discovered. And that's 
basically these long, almost cone-shaped pipes in the ground that are chock full with diamonds. And it's basically just like the vestige of the earth growing over billions of years where carbon has been pressurized and heated by like the magma in the earth's core and then disrupted by really deep volcanic eruptions and then those rocks get pushed closer to the earth's surface that make them available for us to mine so a bunch of these like cone-shaped kimberlites are discovered and kind of like a diamond rush ensues so diamonds are like lava rocks (laughs) yeah they basically are and what's interesting about this diamond rush is that the de beers brothers these dutch settlers in south africa had bought some land and at some point like found a diamond on it and word got out and it triggered this massive rush and they the two brothers who owned this land basically progressively got more and more like strangled by the British government, which was in power at the time, and they had to move. So they have absolutely nothing to do with this company. Wait, really? Yeah, they just discovered this like diamond rich land after buying it. And I'm not saying they're great people. Who the fuck knows? They're settlers (laughs) and colonialists. But my God, like they got pushed out. So this is like finding oil on your land. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, you might think you've struck gold, but, like, when you've struck gold... They come and get you. They come and get (laughs) you. So, now there's this De Beers mine, and simultaneously, this guy... I don't even fucking remember his name. (laughs) Let me go... Let me Google it. Hold, please. Like, names are not important here, okay? Not these guys. (laughs) Oh, Cecil Rhodes. Okay. Cecil Rhodes, simultaneously has discovered that in this diamond rush, there's an economy there. People need to mine these diamonds. And in order to do so, a lot has to happen, right? Like, first of all, they probably need a place to sleep. They need things to eat. They need equipment and tools. They can't just use their bare hands. Another thing that has to happen is if you know anything about wells, you know that (laughs) deeper in the ground, you hit water. So... Like, quick tangent. Let me tell you a thing yeah. or two about a well. Yeah. Famously, wells have water. <laughs> and you have to be able to remove that water in order to continue going downward into the earth mm. and looking for more diamonds. So this guy, Cecil Rhodes, he is like a water pump renter. So he rents people the equipment to remove the water from the earth. And at some point, he consolidates with this like London owned mine, the De Beers mine. And that's what starts the De Beers group, the De Beers monopoly. Like now Cecil Rhodes is considered the founder of De Beers and they control like top to bottom effectively the diamond industry because they're, they own the mine, they own the equipment. They start to own just like selling it to other people. Like they're starting to basically pick up each step of the process so that, They're the ones who control everything. They control supply. They control pricing. All of that stuff. Mm. But to fast forward a little bit in time, after World War II in 1947, De Beers is trying to figure out how can we target this emerging middle class? How can we, without violating antitrust laws that the U.S. has in place to prevent monopolies from manipulating prices, how can we make people want diamonds and diamond jewelry in particular? And so one 
thing they decide to do is they hire this ad agency or this marketing agency. And that is when a copywriter, her name is Frances Garrity, wrote the iconic line, a diamond is forever. Good for her. I hope to God her net worth is what it should be. (laughs) Not that I like the intersection of feminism and capitalism, but like, I hope she got paid. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Someone certainly did. That surprised me though. I think because of like how pervasive diamonds are forever Mm -hmm. is as like a pop culture adage almost. I didn't realize it started as a marketing campaign. All, All things do. You're so right. Like... When did, it's all marketing. <laughs> when did um, Diamonds Are Girl's Best Friend happen? That, I believe, was... Let me see. That's in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah. That's 1953. And was that the first time... Was that song the first time that was ever said? Oh, I think so. I, I don't... I don't know. I think it was. I, I thought you were going to say, was that the first ever sort of like pop culture reference? To which I would have said no, because... I think they do mention a diamond ring in Gone with the Wind, which is 1939, I think. Because I feel like now I hear that like diamonds are a girl's best friend almost as much as diamonds are forever. I think so, too. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I was reading the lyrics and it's kind of sad. (laughs) Okay, I'll read you some. Ready? (laughs) Men grow cold as girls grow old. And we all lose our charms in the end, but square shut, whoa, but square (laughs) cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I mean, spot the lie. Yeah. (laughs) Do grow cold as girls grow old. Um, Have you watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? Yes, but I don't really remember it. I watched it a long time ago. That's the one with like Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey works as he does like marketing and he's trying Mm. to get this big client that's it's a diamond company yeah and he's trying to come up with like a slogan to get people to buy more diamonds and i mean kate hudson comes up with it but he steals it of course Um, and it's frost yourself oh (laughs) (laughs) like like, diamonds are frosting yeah like the cake that is you yeah so it didn't it didn't work out the way a diamond is forever did. I don't think it has the longevity, but in the but they do mm. go with frost yourself or oh, like that diamonds that. are frosting. Mm. Well, other movies with <laughs> diamond references also include, as we just said, obviously gentlemen prefer blondes, but also Breakfast at Tiffany's is a super iconic one. Mm. And then I think there's a James Bond movie called Diamonds Are Forever. There's a song Diamonds Are Forever. It's just oh. suddenly it's becoming very, very, very ubiquitous as we head into like the second half of the 20th century. And that is reflected in the diamond industry from 1939 to 1979. De Beers wholesale diamond sales in the United States increased from 23 million to 2.1 billion. Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot. And you'll notice I said wholesale business because I kind of alluded earlier to the antitrust laws. So they're selling wholesale. They can't directly sell to consumers because of those antitrust laws. So all of this marketing is just like vibes. Like they can't say buy a diamond from De Beers. 
they just have to say you need a fucking diamond like wherever you get it so they they sell to like tiffany's and tiffany's makes a ring yeah that's my understanding honestly like doing this research has only shown me how little i understand the economy supply chain like i (laughs) well it's such a good example (laughs) too of when people are trying to synthesize economic principles and it's like wow supply and demand like things wouldn't exist if the people didn't want it i'm like or (laughs) people realize that they can get rich by convincing us we need something that we weren't asking for ever ever people weren't (laughs) sitting around like you know what i really wish i had like a big expensive rock on my finger every day right they didn't make that up but with that in mind i wanted to show you some of their like print ads it's Really awful quality photos. I'm so sorry because I had to take the pictures. Well, one of them of my computer because my <laughs> computer is too smart to let me take screenshots of the documentaries I watch. So here's the first image. Okay, there's a there's a woman with a uh, in front of a tree that has like flowers on it. Is she? Mm-hmm. Is there a diamond growing off of this tree? Yes. <laughs> like it looks like she's going to pick an apple, and it's a it's like a glittering diamond. She's diamond picking. <laughs> Because they grow on trees. Right. So it's, it's basically just this painting of her picking a diamond from, I don't know, this is like mythological diamond tree. And it says in the copy, lovely miracle just for you. You might see on the bottom left that there's like a scale that's showing what a round cut diamond looks like at different weights. Like half a carat, a carat, whatever. And then in the bottom, of course, it says a diamond is forever. Mm. What's interesting about a diamond is forever, I'm not sure if this was the first print ad with it. It's just one of them. But at first people, well, people, (laughs) men didn't like (laughs) Francis's contribution. They were like, that's grammatically incorrect, which it is like a weird use of the word forever. But my God, what if they had like one? Where would this industry be? Um, another ad I just wanted to show you, which is really hard to see, so I might have to explain it to you, but is also just like a lot more recent. I think it's 80s or 90s. Okay. Diamonds. Think quality first. Consult your jeweler about the four C's. So this is a, or this is not a print ad. This was actually a commercial. And this was a panther wearing like a diamond collar, I guess. <laughs> oh, I cannot see that. <laughs> <laughs> I tried so hard. <laughs> But yeah, this is just, again, that messaging of like consult your jeweler. Mm. It's not saying come buy from De Beers Jewelry Group because they can't. They have to just say consult your jeweler. Your local De Beers retailer. (laughs) Yeah. But okay. So as I said, diamonds are becoming more and more popular throughout the 20th century. And in the 1950s, something starts to happen in a different industry where... Basically, diamonds can now be produced in a lab. So Mm -hmm. we talked about how diamonds are, when they're mined, coming out of the ground. It's been billions of years of heat and pressure and, like, magma pushing it toward the Earth's surface and all of this stuff. But in a lab, they can be manufactured, like I said, with lots of pressure and heat. And this pure carbon that's pressurized and heated starts to break down and crystallizes. And over the course of days, you can create an identical diamond. In the beginning, though, these were not gemstone quality. So the first patent was issued in the 1950s, but scientists did not refine the process to be able to produce gem quality diamonds until the 1980s. And then it took even longer to make it just like commercially viable. So we have a while before we're going to see this affect the industry. 
I'm talking as if we're currently in 1950. Mm-hmm. We have a while before this will affect the industry. But it's starting. It's like this is on the horizon now. What is gemstone quality? Honestly, it's a great question. I think what they're saying is that they didn't look pretty. <laughs> sort of. I think it's because so diamonds, because they are technically the hardest material on Earth, they can be used to cut other hard metals, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So other industries that were focused on other metals and not jewelry could have like trace amounts of diamond to make I don't know, small incisions. To be honest, I didn't really look into what exactly industrial diamonds are used for, but that's my understanding of it. And I think they're saying these were probably just like too small to be polished and cut into something Mm. maybe even visible. Like it just wasn't something you would put in a piece of jewelry. I know given that diamonds are like the strongest thing, surely there's a better use for them. Right. No, right. (laughs) It's like, I don't think... A lot of people realize, and I I didn't really realize till recently, that industrial diamonds are a thing. Like, they are used as an industrial tool. That in and of itself kind of takes some of the romance out of it, but in a way that's not unrealistic. Like, they that is what they're used for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a big knife to cut other things with. <laughs> um, but okay, so back to the 20th century. We're hovering around the 1950s, um, and we now know, okay, lab-grown diamonds are being used in industrial applications. That's sort of on the horizon. Now I want to kind of fast forward to the 90s when we get to Sierra Leone's Civil War. Mm. And did you ever see that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, Blood Diamond? No. Basically, that movie was, I think, pretty well acclaimed and depicts... However, unrealistically, this illegal mining and exporting of diamonds out of places like Sierra Leone, which was undergoing a civil war, and it's in many cases the smuggling outside of the Sierra Leone border so that diamonds could be exported from other places, that is in many cases what funded the civil war and thus the promotion of child soldiers and like loss of life. So when people talk about blood diamonds or conflict diamonds or conflict free Mm. diamonds what we're all anchoring around is sort of the idea of a diamond that was used to finance a civil war to finance the loss of life and like the conditions to mine those diamonds to smuggle those diamonds and then the money used upon purchasing of that diamond all of that is associated generally with like violence and exploitation oh wow okay i didn't really know what a blood diamond meant i thought it was like people dying while mining them no no, it's a good, it's, it, I think it's a pretty misunderstood term. And it's also a pretty narrow term because I think that there's a lot of questions around like workplace safety. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, like our minds safe? I don't know. And so should we only be concerned about diamonds that fund specifically deadly wars? Or should we be concerned about like the conditions of actually getting a diamond, even if the country isn't undergoing a war? Is Sierra Leone still... Like, where else are people mining diamonds? Is Sierra Leone, like, the main place? There are a lot of places. South Africa with, like, the Kimberley region, which is what named the Kimberlite thing. Tunnel I don't things. even really know how to categorize <laughs> that. But, yeah, that cone, mineral, diamond-full thing, Kimberlite. Mm-hmm. Um, so South Africa is one. Botswana. I know that there's a lot of mines in Siberia. Oh, wow. It's definitely not like Sierra Leone has like the majority of the market share of the diamonds Mm. that can be mined right now. Siberia. Very different climate. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
Interesting. Yeah, in Siberia, there's this one mine called the Mir Mine or the Mirni Mine. And their winter lasts seven months. The average temperature is like negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, God. And so it's actually warmer in the mine when you're 3,000 plus feet deep, like in the earth, in the ground. And it's like 60 or 70 degrees when you're down there working. I'm, I'm not saying I think this is like the safest, most fun work place ever. I'm just saying some of the miners were like, it's actually sometimes kind of nice to be warm. I'm sure they have a lot of Yeah, other is it like, a, but... I was going to say, sounds like a coveted job when you're in Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> but the Mirni mine started as what I believe is called an open pit mine, where it's sort of just like a big hole. And slowly, as it continued to be mined more and more and more, the walls like were starting to crumble. So it makes it really dangerous and it's really deep. But also, it is so big that the warmth coming out of the mine, interacting with the cold air on top, created a vortex that was like, pulling planes down into it. And so they had to restrict the airspace above it. What? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Seems kind of like Mother Nature being like, don't come in. <laughs> That's so wild. See, see, why was I so worried about the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> Worry about the Mirni Mine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So crazy. But yeah, so there's a lot that people like, a lot that people really dislike about Blood Diamond. I think a lot of people feel strongly that that movie is just like a simplistic portrayal of almost every black character. There are really no black women in the movie. And then Mm. otherwise, the black men are either mindless, brainwashed killers and pillagers or childlike noble savages. So there's definitely a lot to critique about it. I haven't watched it in many years But I think the idea is it kind of brought national attention to this idea of a blood diamond Mm. more than it necessarily realistically depicted everything going on. Mm. Okay. So in the wake of like more national attention coming onto blood diamonds in general, I actually think this might have preceded the movie by a little bit. But the industry having concerns about blood diamonds led to something that's called the Kimberly process. The Kimberly process basically is a, a certification scheme that was designed to prevent conflict diamonds from entering the mainstream. But the effectiveness is like very much called into question. The system supposedly has failed to thwart the trading of diamonds mined as a result of human suffering, which is kind mm-hmm. of like what we were just talking about is, okay, if you're thwarting things being sold to fund a civil war, are you thwarting everything that we care about? It's I think it's just a hard problem to solve. How, how easily can that be traced? If someone goes to buy a diamond ring, are these questions to be asking your jeweler, like, where'd you get this? Or how how easily can you find out the origin of a diamond? That is a wonderful, wonderful question. Most people, even if they tell you they know where their diamond comes from. Are talking out of their ass. Oh, I mean, they're, they're deceived. Like, they probably has, mm. have a certificate that says it comes from this mine in this country, sold to this group, brought at this time to this country, and now it's in your hands. Mm. And that could be made up. I see. So I don't know. I mean, people, a lot of people have a lot of stake in telling you that traceability is totally possible, and they're ethically mining all of their diamonds. They ethically source diamonds. <laughs> and it's... Again, all marketing. <laughs> You're like, define ethical. Yeah. <laughs> Whoo, boy. <laughs> we're going to be here all day. Um, but okay, so now we're going to move from Sierra Leone to Botswana. And like I said, a bunch of Kimberlites were starting to be discovered, not just in South Africa, but Sierra Leone, Siberia, and Botswana. 
And the Botswana government decides not at all to do with diamonds or anything like that. They decide to evict the San Bushmen out of basically in the entire central Kalahari game reserve. So they are starving and like depleting this group of people of any resources, any access to outside water or food to force them out of this region in what they say is an effort to conserve land. So they're saying, we want to create a nature reserve. So we're getting rid of you guys. Mm. You all have to leave. The country's oldest ethnic group, you have to leave because we feel like preserving this land. And they put out multiple press statements saying, we are not doing this so that diamond mining companies can come in here. No, we're just doing it for the sake of preserving nature. Sounds Um, fishy. Can you guess what happened (laughs) 10 years later? (laughs) Mine city. Yeah. So when we're talking about blood diamonds, it's hard because, yes, the the diamonds coming out of this region wouldn't be considered a blood diamond. But the San Bushmen were starved and, like, Mm. forcibly removed from this land and lied to Mm -hmm. just so that this area could later be mined. Mm -hmm. And... The government is trying to get a better deal with the companies that are mining this region. I think currently they get to keep about 25% of the stones and they are able to tax it to a certain extent. So the numbers that I was seeing was that they basically get like 80 cents for every dollar that like these outside forces are getting Mm. on the backs of these mines. But yeah, Botswana is, I think, currently trying to get more profit from these mines and also take a bigger part in not just the mining, but also... The polishing and the cutting of the diamonds, which is the stage of the process when I believe diamonds become the most valuable because Mm. until then they're kind of just literally an ugly rock. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're jumping even closer to the present and the De Beers monopoly is quote unquote over. This is where my knowledge of the economy is failing me. (sighs) I do not understand. I don't know what's going on. I've read this over and over. I need your help in parsing through this. Okay. Okay. The De Beers monopoly is quote unquote over because in November 2011, they sold a majority share of their company to a company called Anglo-American. Previously, Anglo-American had a 45% stake in De Beers. But in 2011, De Beers sold them their own 40% stake in the company. Okay. So now Anglo-American owns 85% and De Beers owns the rest or stakeholders own the rest or who the hell knows. I really clearly am out of my depths. But this is, these are my two questions. One, does that mean like Anglo-American has a monopoly or am I stupid? Um, I would think that Anglo-American would now have a monopoly. Like I feel like when, when companies are trying to keep their leadership in a space, they buy competitors right and absorb them and that continues like a monopoly if like any competition gets absorbed by right it's like big guy so i would assume that that means now anglo-american is the majority owner of this company and therefore they are the monopoly it's just more corporate consolidation right like yeah okay now my second question context before the question the family that owns Anglo-American is the family that owns De Beers. <laughs> so they just bought themselves? I'm so confused. Like, the family, ironically, is named the Oppenheimer family. Oh. <laughs> Nothing to do. 
with the namesake of the very recent Oppenheimer movie. I checked. I was like, fathers, sisters, uncles. Okay. No. <laughs> um, but right now, De Beers is run by this guy that I mentioned earlier, Stephen Lucier, the one who was very defensive about how no one marketed to that archduke. Da, da, da. Yeah. Him. He married a woman named Sophie Oppenheimer. Okay. That Oppenheimer family that his wife is a part of owns Anglo-American. And the only reason Stephen Lucier Lucier runs De Beers is because his like parents-in-law ran it. And then we're like, here, you can kind of start to inherit the family business now that you've married into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just not so sure what's going on at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like... This is when I'm out of my depths. I'm trying to read these articles and understand the Monopoly ended. Okay, got it. Let me figure out how and why. And I cannot figure out how and why. Yeah, like the the De Beers Monopoly ended and the Anglo-American <laughs> started. And no? the Oppenheimer Monopoly just stayed. <laughs> like, what? I'm confused. Honestly, if anyone knows what is going on or can <laughs> figure it out and explain it to me, non-rhetorically, I would love that. Anyway, now... We're in, as I said, 2011, and lab-grown diamonds are, like, taking the stage in earnest, and we'll talk more about that later, but first I just want to talk about why, like, traditionalists like Stephen Lucier of De Beers or Martin Rappaport, this chairman of a group called Rappaport Group that sets the price of diamonds, why they all supposedly hate lab-growns. According to Martin Rappaport, this chairman, he likens it to having like a lithograph of a Picasso. When you have a real thing in your home, you feel different. You act different. In front of the Picasso? (laughs) (laughs) I'm picturing this man walking into his living room. Not in front of the Picasso. (laughs) I know. Like, what? It's like, then you, and also like you feel different. You act different by yourself. Or, like, you have people over and show it off. I would assume that the issue is if you can grow a diamond in a lab, theoretically, you could be doing that. You could be, like, mass-producing diamonds, which will just inevitably reduce the value of the mined diamonds slash diamonds overall. Like, if diamonds are no longer thought of as rare or they're very easy to make the overall value of the idea of a diamond goes down so they want to convince you they're i think they're just protecting their like bottom line i think they want to convince you that a lab grown diamond is never going to be the same as this mind miracle that the earth presses and whatever in this like incredible phenomenon but not because they believe in any of it just because they're like well if everyone if everyone can have a diamond then No one's going to want one. Right. And what's interesting is that they're never using any of that language to talk about why they don't like lab-grown diamonds. They're only ever saying, you just feel better when you have the real thing. It's just a vibe. Yeah. They're saying things like, this took billions of years to make. This is older than the stars in the sky. You are connected to the earth when you wear a ring. To which I would also say, like, fine to each their own, but you can do much better by the earth and feel much more connected by the earth in other ways. But Plant a whatever. tree. Like, do you? Yeah. I also um, don't think that's what people are thinking when they're wearing diamonds. I think they're thinking no, no. status. No, they are not. They're not a thinking, hundred. oh my gosh, I'm so connected to the earth. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> like every hippie in the world. Yeah. Like them and all hippies, their diamonds. Hippies like, don't no. wear diamonds. <laughs> they're barefoot. Exa- that's how they're connected exactly. to the earth. 
Another thing that this guy, Martin Rappaport, says is that a wedding ring is a sign of ultimate commitment and love. And this is where it gets really gendered. That's so (laughs) stupid. I'm sorry. Ultimate commitment and love. Your ring is what symbolizes that. You can lose a ring. The way he says it, too, is like, because the women have to carry the babies, they need proof that the man is going to stick around. So the bigger and better and more expensive the diamond, the more they feel committed to. In the same breath, he also says, women don't just think it's worth 80 or $120, put it on a scale, and that's our marriage. No. It's a sign of commitment. And I'm like, okay, but no. You just said the money va- like mattered. Also, that argument makes it... Wouldn't that be an argument for the man to wear the diamond? Like, oh, I'm carrying the babies. I need to know that you're going to stick around. I want you walking around with the biggest diamond in the world so everyone knows you're committed. Mm, You know? Like, I don't understand. So I have to carry the baby and this diamond? (laughs) I don't know. The way it sounds is like, what, you have to financially set your partner back so far that he can't woo another lady? Like, that's how he commits to you? So, I don't know. It just seems very gendered, obviously very hetero. Martin drones on and on. Oh, it it has to have value. It has to retain value. The woman projects the value of the diamond onto herself. Don't diamonds like, like depreciate in value like super quickly or something? I don't know. Theoretically, they say mined diamonds retain more value than lab-grown diamonds because lab-growns can be produced at infinitum. And so mm-hmm. why would anyone want like a used one? Or whatever. Yeah. I thought that that was kind of the case with mine diamonds as well. That like people want custom. I think because like we put so much value into picking out your perfect ring Mm -hmm. that you like a wedding dress, you know, you you want your like custom never been worn. I'm because Mm -hmm. we've attached this like it means Mm -hmm. you're special. This is your special, unique commitment. Like this guy's saying with your partner. I don't want someone else's old diamond right unless it's like the hope diamond (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) right no it's i i am not super sure because again when they're talking about why they hate lab groans so much they are only ever saying this weird fluffy emotional projection bullshit about how a woman needs to know her worth via a diamond and it's just they just keep saying a diamond is the real thing none of their explanations actually make sense to me it's just you want your partner to prove how much you're worth by spending a fuck ton of money and mind diamonds are more expensive it's also like diamonds like obviously you can spend a lot of money on a diamond but if you're thinking about it like that first of all it's super transactional and also do you want that like what amount would make you feel like what would feel like an appropriate pricing of your value like i I'm worth more than three months' <laughs> salary. Like, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. So, you know, someone's saying, I spent $20,000 on a ring. You're like, whoa, that's that's a that's a lot of money to spend on one ring. But if you're saying, I spent $20,000 on my wife, like, that's, <laughs> that's what my wife is worth. I'd be like, fuck right, right. off. Right. No, it's so, it's so backwards. And also for anyone who is concerned about resale value, my first question is, how soon are you reselling your engagement ring? Is anybody selling it? Like, I, I don't think so. I mean, unless, I mean, again, if you're getting divorced, 
very quickly after. Sure, maybe you sell it, but you're not thinking about that when you put it on for the first time, hopefully, because you're saying yes to someone who you do think you will marry. Yeah, it's I, I wouldn't think of it as like an investment by any means. Certainly not. And if we're thinking about it in terms of investment, it's actually much, much, much more prudent to not buy a mined diamond and put the money that would have cost into like an ETF fund, like uh, yeah, just invest it. That will, over time, accrue a lot more readily liquid gains for you than any than potential resale value of a mines diamond if you plan on getting rid of it anyway. And most people just pass these things on anyway, so. Right. It's just interesting because they're not ever talking in concretely financial terms. This guy, Martin, like I said, mentioned oh, like, what are they thinking about? Like, I'm worth $80, $120, put a ring on a scale and that's what, like, he says that. I'm thinking, what mined diamond is $80? Like, what are you talking about? Like, he's he's at no point using real numbers to make his case, you know? Yeah. Add a couple zeros, buddy. (laughs) Right. $80. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Anyway, he just continues droning on and on. He says, wait, question. Mm -hmm. I know from you that lab grown diamonds have like a little like lg or something Mm -hmm. inside that you can't see like the naked eye but like when guys will praise them or whatever have that little i was gonna say microphone that's not what it is microscope situation yeah the jeweler's loop (laughs) there you go um if you don't write that in is there any way to tell the difference no lol (laughs) so we're gonna we're gonna get there okay (laughs) i'm so glad you asked um but before we do get there one last thing i wanted to mention that martin said is that according to him the sale of synthetic diamonds as diamond engagement rings is a fundamental violation of the ethics of the diamond industry it's a fundamental violation of my profits (laughs) (laughs) right like the ethics of the diamond industry is an oxymoron what are you talking about what what ethics? What ethics? Sell it to the people you displaced. Right. Oh, my God. That's the <laughs> fundamental violation to me. Yeah. He also very specifically keeps calling them synthetic diamonds, even though that's not an accurate term, because like we just said, they are like molecularly identical. So it's not synthetic. It's just made in a different way. And he calls them synthetic to be mm-hmm. purposefully pejorative. I mean, I understand that like if you've made your wealth in an industry and it, and it takes like all this manpower mm-hmm. and money and investment to like get this stuff out of the ground and then polish it and make it look nice and suddenly you can just grow it in a lab in a couple days that you're gonna be pissed <laughs> yeah for sure but one other thing he says as well is that when talking about just like synthetics and all of this stuff and all of the ways in which people are just violating the ethics of the diamond industry he talks about this Yehuda treatment where this brain guy who has like a million patents, this Israeli jeweler, created a Yehuda treatment. His name is Zvi Yehuda. And it's basically where you're somehow able to almost like fill in any imperfections with this coating or this glass or something that boosts the clarity. I don't know the longevity of the treatment, mm-hmm. but it's just called like, I guess, the Yehuda treatment. And it makes your diamond more refractive and shine brighter and have less inclusions. Martin Rappaport, this guy we're talking about, says, when all of the wives found out they got a ring with the Yehuda treatment, they lined up around the block and demanded a refund. Then Yehuda drank jewelry cleaner and killed himself. <gasps> I look I look this man up. I don't see anywhere that he took his own life. I'm like, are, are we lying? He died at 86. He died this year in May. I Wait, what? He, the documentary where Martin Rappaport said that he then drank jewelry cleaner and killed himself came out in 2022. 
Zvia Hooded died in May 2023. What? Am I missing something? Like, <laughs> are we allowed to lie? Like, what's going on? What is going on? That's fascinating. That's such a random thing to, like, a very disprovable right. lie. And, like, maybe he did commit suicide, but still, the documentary came out before this person passed away. Unless I have the wrong Zvia Hooda who created a diamond treatment. Yeah. Weird. So it's just, it's just one of those things where... People might tell you that lab-grown diamonds are against the ethics of the diamond industry, but those same people, what are their ethics? So he's against, even if it's treating a mined diamond, messing with it in any way. Mm -hmm. Because to him, the value of a diamond is that your partner spent as much as they could to get the real thing. He's all about the Mm. real thing. If the clarity is manufactured in any way cheaply like if you could cheaply make a diamond with a lot of inclusions look like an expensive diamond that just never had any inclusions to begin with you're being cheap that's not the real thing it's just funny the real thing what does that mean what is real what is real what is the value of a diamond seriously why do people care about in the first place if we want the real thing sir then why aren't we putting on unpolished diamonds on our finger why aren't we if we want this like untouched you want it to be exactly the way it was found, then it should be this crusty rock that no one cuts into shapes or polishes in any way. Where are you drawing this line? Right. And to take it a step further, frankly, we should only be getting the ones that you can pan out of riverbeds, but not the ones that you have to go 5,000 feet into the ground with a bulldozer to find. Like, why yeah. does that feel? Is it natural for humans to be that deep in the Earth's core, <laughs> taking, taking crystallized rocks and bring them mm-hmm. up like that's not what what does natural mean yeah yeah he he's just again none of these people these traditionalists in the industry are ever giving real reasons why a mined diamond is actually better none of them ever they're not using numbers they're not using chemistry nothing they're just saying you'll feel connected to the earth or your partner only loves you if he buys you the real deal that's all you're hearing it's extremely heteronormative it's extremely mm-hmm. greedy and it is substanceless mm-hmm. now back to your point about the lg that's supposedly incised at a microscopic level on these lab grown diamonds mm-hmm. it's not always happening <laughs> mm. so is there like a regulation or something or why why do they write the lg I don't know. I I actually need to look further into that because I was trying to figure out which companies actually do. That's just what I was told by my jeweler. Because for context, my ring is a lab-grown diamond. And I was told the only difference is that if someone took it under a microscope, they would be able to like find this tiny little LG incised in the bottom. But otherwise, molecularly identical. Same durability, same brilliance, da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, okay, fuck it. <laughs> like, I'd rather save X thousand dollars and just get the lab-grown one. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if my jeweler is associated in any way with, like, dealers who only source from particular labs. Or if particular labs are owned by companies that also own mines, where they have an incentive to differentiate somehow. I just don't know who is and who isn't incising this LG. If everyone who makes lime lab grown diamonds is if that's just something that they say if it's just something my jeweler said Mm -hmm. a few articles online that i saw did say oh yeah and like the lab grown diamonds will have lg but we now know not all of them do and this is particularly rampant among small diamonds Mm. so small diamonds under like half a carat 
maybe under a quarter of a carat. Those are called, cumulatively, collectively, those are called melee. So what's been happening with melee or small diamonds is a lot of mixing. Because basically, a lot of those industrial diamonds that we were talking about are now at like gemological quality or whatever and have sort of been added into the mix. And they don't have LG incised on them. And there's no way for anyone, once they're cut and polished, to know that they're synthetic. Because again, they are identical. So a lot of people buying diamonds, thinking they're mined diamonds, thinking it's like mined melee in their pave band, are probably buying lab-grown diamonds. I mean, I have a smaller band with supposedly mined diamonds in it. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And there's this one guy in this documentary that I watched. His name is Chandu Bai. And he works at this factory basically where they're polishing diamonds and he says that hoodwinking people and maligning the industry has become a game now millions of carrots of lab growns are flooding the market and no one cares no one in the factory will complain no one no one in the factory is interested in complaining why because they've never been able to afford a diamond in the first place why the Mm -hmm. fuck would they give one ounce of a shit about the most elitist (laughs) industry out there Mm -hmm. they're like I've been working since I was 12 and I've never been able to afford one. Why do I ca- like, okay, it's a synthetic diamond who like, frankly, I fucking hate these people. So yeah, it's very, very hard to stop. And so one of the jewelers in this documentary, her name is Asia. She's a jewelry designer. She's the only woman interviewed, by the way, for this documentary. <laughs> she says industry people sometimes say it's about 1% of melee that are lab grown. She thinks it's more like at least 20%. And then she says also that no one's talking about how much of the bigger cuts are lab grown, meaning like how much of the one, the two, the bigger carrot diamonds are lab grown and just like mm-hmm. undetectable because like you said, that LG maybe is supposed to be incised, but isn't. I'm sure that there are there are companies that sell both under different names, like a big company that has its Tiffany branch and then mm-hmm. something else called labgrowndiamond.com or whatever. And that it's owned by the same people because why wouldn't they? Well, it's funny that you say that because De Beers as of 2018 started doing that. I mean, it makes sense. Like, why would they, instead of having to compete, just do both? Right. It's like the the Elvis's manager or whatever who sold merch. Like, I love Elvis t-shirts and I hate Elvis t-shirts. <laughs> So it was like, either way, iconic, you make the profit, however people feel about you. Yeah. No, that's so true. That was so iconic. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, there's a lot of mixing, a lot of undetected, undisclosed, undetectable mixing that's going on. And at first, I think not that many people were because, again, it's undetectable. But then results were starting to be published of how like 243 out of 4,000 in a pool of melee were proven somehow to be synthetic. So that's, I don't know if that's where like Chan Dubai comes in, him and his other like buddies at the polishing factory just being like, we don't care. We just can't care. And like, I get that. Or if it's maybe bigger industry players thinking that they can pass something off and turn a higher profit. As we've been saying though, what is like the big concern really with lab diamonds entering the industry if they are molecularly identical? Like what's the problem Beyond all of that fluff, like what makes a diamond real? And a lot of people would say the rarity, the scarcity. It's not just coming from the earth. It's not just something that took billions of years to produce as opposed to a few days in a lab. But there is a finite number of them on this earth. And thus, it will increase in value. It will have resale value. It's 
special, it's unique, it's precious inherently because there are fewer of them than the possibility of how many labrum diamonds might be made. Mm. It turns out that that's not true. Mined diamonds aren't rare at all. At all. Yeah. They're one of, if not the most common gemstone. <laughs> there are enough diamonds for every single person on this planet to have a half a carat diamond ring, ring with a half a billion carats left over. I know that's what that video said that it was like they're actually fucking everywhere man they're They're everywhere man they're everywhere deceitful yeah it is and that's that's one of the major major pillars upon which the value of a diamond rests when we kick that out from underneath this what are we left with yeah like really and truly why are we all spending that much on diamonds and i say that i have mined diamonds you have mined diamonds that we know of <laughs> yeah, in our no rings <laughs> on our hands right now. But mm-hmm. what's the value of it? It's, I mean, I get that there are, of course, texts where people talk about it being valuable from like centuries and centuries and millennia ago. And in many places has like spiritual value and it is the hardest substance on earth and it does have refractive properties. And I think it's pretty. I'm just saying it's overvalued because basically yeah. mined diamonds aren't that rare. No. Absolutely not. What's rare is to have the money to spend (laughs) on a huge diamond so it can just inflate the... It's like my mom used to work in fashion and she worked for this company that sold belts, shoes, and purses to different brands. Mm -hmm. And she said to my dad when they started dating, she was like, never buy me like a fancy purse as a gift or something. She's like, because I know behind the scenes Mm -hmm. she was saying that basically she would go to these like warehouses or whatever with the same materials the same kind of Mm -hmm. shape and fancy brands would buy the exact same thing Mm -hmm. as a cheaper brand smack their logo on it and price it differently and that the only thing that gave it scarcity or value was just oh you are rich enough to carry a certain bag but not that the bag is better made by any means and same happens with like car parts Mm -hmm. they're all in the same place and like a fancy car company will use the exact same thing as a different car and so we're just paying for signaling we're not paying for inherent value or rarity Mm -hmm. like none of this stuff has any value that we don't attribute to it so really it's just we want to be able to signal when we walk down the street i come from a certain type of family or i have a certain income or my husband works at some amazing hedge fund and makes so much money look at my big (laughs) ring you know like that's what we're trying to say we don't give a shit about being connected to the earth no no we certainly (laughs) do not and like that's the thing too is i feel any gemstone could be spun anyway like yes right now we say oh well It's such like a hard substance and it has these refractive qualities and this, that, and the other. But light refraction is ultimately an arbitrary characteristic of a very, very, very common gemstone. Totally. And it could have been just as easily spun the other way around of, oh God, how how tacky to be so flashy. You don't want a diamond that's really shiny because that's what they say about moissanite. About who? The Mennonites? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> All due respect to the Mennonites. We are talking about moissanites, which is another stone that can be lab grown. And I think it's like naturally occurring in meteors, maybe, maybe. But it's like 
almost as hard as a diamond. It can be any color and it has a much, much higher refractive index, meaning it throws like quote unquote rainbow fire or something. Mm -hmm. So because moissanites are much cheaper than diamonds, people say the rainbow fire of a moissanite is incredibly tacky and like a dead giveaway. So to your point, yeah, like it can be spun any way. Moissanite really sounds like a group of people. <laughs> I know. I don't know why the it's moissanite. called that. One word I did not look up the etymology for was moissanite. <laughs> I'm shocked. But as we continue to talk about what the difference is between a lab-grown diamond and a mined diamond, one thing that is sort of, at least for our generation, a really important deciding factor as the lines become blurred and more blurred is the environmental impact. But I'm finding it hard to get concrete numbers. And I think that that's a hard thing to do in general. I don't know that we've yet come up with any kind of system where you can really understand the environmental impact of any given product. Like knowing where your, let's say your cotton bathrobe (laughs) Mm -hmm. was, where where was that cotton sourced? Mm -hmm. Is that field of cotton over farmed to a point where the soil becomes completely infertile? And then can't produce anything and the local ecosystem suffers when the fibers are then like turned into a textile. How far from where you live is it being produced? How much jet fuel does it take to get it to you? Like it's very, very hard to understand entirely the impact of any given item. So I'm not saying that we should be able to understand it for lab grown and mined diamonds. That said, It feels like people have a lot of stake in pushing messaging one way or the other because there is such this like contentious almost fight between the two. So this one trade group funds report says that lab grown diamonds are basically three times worse for the environment. They take like three times as much fossil fuels to produce. Mm. And they are also saying like and mined diamonds create jobs, many, many, many more jobs than a lab grown diamond would. Mm. But then I found out that the True Cost report saying all of that is produced on behalf of the Diamond Producers Association, a trade group of miners, including De Beers. Yeah. So, uh, no, it's so difficult because, like you're saying with the cotton, supply chains are so convoluted and there's so many moving pieces that you you would have to assess every step of the way. And is it the brand that you end up buying the item at is it Mm -hmm. their responsibility what one of their suppliers Mm -hmm. does at their company if the company that you're ultimately buying from let's say you're buying like a top from Thada or something and let's say Thada is like notoriously paying their employees far more than like other fast fashion brands or whatever but one of their suppliers in their long supply chain has like terrible ethics Mm -hmm. for the people they employ. Like how much is that that as responsibility and what like all of this assessing is so complicated and obviously none of these things are going to be perfect. But like, I think it's unreasonable to expect people to do so much homework every time they want to buy something like you. There's only so much time in the day. Right. It's why regulation matters because it shouldn't be really on the consumer to figure all of that out. Well, is this particular button on my Zara shirt sourced from a manufacturer that has like fair wages. And what about the paint on that button? And what about, you know, exactly. That shouldn't be something I even need to consider because it just shouldn't be allowed. Like, I feel like we've talked about this before of 
when something says ethically sourced or whatever on it and we're like so is everything else not like the fact that that's even like a selling point of like oh my god look at this perfume it's ethically sourced (laughs) it's like that's our bar everything else is not ethically sourced and what the hell does ethically sourced like why is the government allowing anything to not be ethically sourced it's so it's so baffling when you put it in such stark relief like that like if we have to say something's ethical what the fuck is everything else yeah and if you if you have to be worried about that like sometimes i also get like overwhelmed when i look at a product and it has like every single sticker of like it's fair trade it's ethically sourced it's non-gmo it's vegan it's this it's that whatever like we're gonna get to a point where you're buying an apple and like the whole apple is covered in stickers telling you like the values that this apple stands for instead of just blanket having rules that run the economy that you're not allowed to put an apple in a grocery store yeah if it wasn't all those things especially because to your point when that's a sticker on the apple it's probably the people selling the sticker who chose to make that sticker and put it on there because they are self-interested. Everyone saying whatever they're saying about the ethics of the sourcing of these products is trying to make money, whereas a regulation can just be protecting its constituents. Mm -hmm. And I know people run away with the phrase no ethical consumption under capitalism because Mm -hmm. I do ultimately think it's on us to do our best. But for the most part, I think that comes from reusing and recycling what we can and just consuming less And with that in mind, I think that people maybe who are trying to guilt you into thinking one way or the other about the environmental impact of a diamond in your jewelry might have an ulterior motive to protect their own industry and the pricing of their own product. Or if you were if you wanted to wear a ring and you didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. And you bought like cheaper materials that like tarnish or like mm-hmm. turn your finger green or whatever. And so you're like constantly replacing that ring. Then that environmental impact is much greater than right. like one purchase. No, that's a really good point. And that's actually something I was also kind of going to add in my takeaway thoughts of like, in a way, this is sort of freeing because you get to decide what you think is beautiful and valuable. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's really durability. I like a lab-grown diamond being the highest score on the most scale. And I like that I chose 14K gold instead of 18K gold because 18K gold is softer. I chose mm-hmm. a two millimeter band because that holds up and is less liable to like tilting and bending than a 1.5 millimeter band. Like there mm-hmm. are things that you can decide on that have to do less with what people say is valuable and more to do with, okay, what do I think is pretty? What do I think will hold up? What fits my lifestyle? Mm-hmm. And yeah, ultimately, if you're getting a diamond ring, we're we're all still being played a little bit, right? Like we're all still buying into the idea that this is what you do when you get engaged. And I think it's hard to shed at a certain point. But all of that to say, I just think it's freeing in the sense that all of this is made up. Like, you get to decide what matters to you. Also, people really aren't looking at your shit. They like, are not. <laughs> I feel like people look at your at a ring the moment you get it. Be like, oh, let me see your ring. And then they're probably never paying attention to it again. Right. <laughs> so wait, you're the only one that needs to look at it every day. Get something that you like and that doesn't make you feel like, you know what? I could have bought a house. <laughs> and instead. Right. <laughs> I could have right. bought We're a car. About- <laughs> Uh, You know, like (laughs) we're talking about inherent value, like people should start getting engagement houses like (laughs) like, oh, do you imagine that'd be sick. I want an engagement 
Trader Joe's gift card. Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. I, I want an engagement massage membership. You know, like give me that. Oh my god. Fuck the ring. Like what is your favorite thing to do? An engagement trip. <laughs> an Sound engagement- off in the comments. Yeah, like- what do you want for your engagement? <laughs> Honestly. I love this. I know. And I will say too, like you and I both with respect to our engagements, like did what I call reciproposing, like a reciprocal proposal where Mm -hmm. that was the time at which we decided to get our partner's rings and then they wore it for the duration of the engagement the way we did. Or wait, did Santiago wear a ring during his engagement? I know you reciprocosed with Brie. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He did wear a ring. He really wanted this like black tungsten ring. Oh, yeah. And... At first, I mean, he we were engaged for like two and a half months, so it didn't yeah. really matter. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was like, a black ring, so ugly. Then he was like, I'm going to switch it out for the gold band when we get married. I was like, all right, wear whatever you want. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now he wears a fucking silicon ring. So. Right. Right. But I wish looks- he had read that. No, it looks great. Yeah. But I wish he had read that uh, fucking degloving article before we bought the gold ring. Right. Right. <laughs> I was just in a box. Talk about no value i know i know oh my god that's another thing is people like not wearing their jewelry whatever or like the people who have birkin bags and never use them and they have them like locked away in a safe i don't get it i'm like so why did you buy something to hide it to have the the luxury (laughs) of hiding it like it it feels like buying it so someone else can't (laughs) kind of yeah (laughs) no that's so true like did you hear recently that drake has like a room in his house or something or, or some storage or whatever with like a hundred Birkin bags for his future wife. You're joking. Which is like, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> there's so much to unpack. <laughs> but like these bags that he, there's one I think that's like the Hermes Himalayan Birkin, which is the rarest handbag in the world that last sold at auction for $382,000. Say that number again. for a bag that he has in a room for his quote-unquote future wife who first of all I would think you're a serial killer (laughs) if you're like I "I bought all these things before I even met you and what if she doesn't like Perkins no what if what if she's Kim Kardashian and she already has this I think Kim Kardashian was just seen at a soccer game with this bag I wonder if like I don't want to say this like completely sweepingly because I know that obviously it's like skewed coastal elites stuff but like I feel like a lot of our peers in our generation and and people younger than us are really into thrifting and doing it themselves and all this stuff and I wonder if like there will be increased value in getting like a vintage ring in the next like coming years or something rather than getting a new ring and that people will will want that there'll be value in this like this story behind where this came from and like all of this stuff like I have a ring that my mom gave me that like she passed down to me that I think is super beautiful and I never would have designed a a ring like it like I wouldn't have thought to and it like the whole story behind it and like how my great grandmother made that ring with the diamond that her father wore on a pin on his tie and like this whole thing and I'm like Oh my god! That like that has so much value and history tied right, to it, and right. it's like, oh, she made it in the twenties. I'm like, that's so much cooler than like walking into Tiffany's today, and it's just like mm-hmm. a, another random ring that anybody could have. Like this yeah. ring, no one else can have because yeah. it, like it was specifically made a hundred years ago. 
So I wonder if there'll be more of a lean towards that. I think so. I think so. And like and I like- actually rare, not inflated rare. Yeah. <laughs> because same with the Birkin bags. Like there's no reason that Hermes can't make more. They yeah. specifically have like year long wait lists because of what we were saying earlier of like the whole point is what does this signal yeah. to people around me? It's not because leather is some like commodity that we can't access. Right. Like we're... <laughs> We got a lot of cows, okay? That one is crocodile, (laughs) I think. (laughs) But no, actually, like actual rarity might be the direction they're headed. And what's interesting is, too, a lot of the very big diamonds found in these mines, they kind of try to do that storytelling you're talking about where you're talking about, okay, like this ring, which was in this tie clip, which came from this, again, designed together and these people who are important to me in my life and the history of my family, like that's actual sentimental value to you Mm -hmm. but what's funny is that these big diamonds coming out of these mines they will tell the most ludicrous stories about these big hundred carat diamonds that they find and all of them are very similar it's made up they give it a name so they'll give the diamond let's say like the queen of south africa that's the name right of this like hundred carat diamond that was found is it is it like i know diamonds are not that rare is a really big diamond actually rare or is it also very common to find like huge diamonds it's definitely rarer for sure Mm -hmm. but i don't know if like the relationship between how much more rare they are than the smaller ones is actually like correlated proportionally with the price increase per carat if that makes sense Mm. but they'll give it a name like the queen of south africa or whatever and then they'll all tell this story like when it's at auction of oh like it was a long day And the miners were just getting ready to wrap up and head home. But out of the corner of their eye, they saw something glimmering in a pile of debris. And they walked over with their penknife and dislodged a pebble. And they saw this big old honking diamond. And they thought, that's too big to be a diamond. It's probably just rock crystal. And they threw it back in the pile. But then... Right as they were really about to leave, they thought better of it, and they walked back, and they and lo and behold, it's the most precious diamond you've ever seen in your entire life. And like, and that is how we have the Queen of South Africa. (laughs) What the fuck? But anyway, in our discussion of like, okay, where is this industry going? I I think the fact that they'll try and tell stories like that about these mined diamonds does get at the fact that we do care about sentimental value. You know, we do care about a story and maybe the way that will slowly start to manifest is in more personal sentimental value of, okay, like these heirloom stones or I don't know. We'll, I guess we'll see. Another thing I was wondering is like. We're totally suckers for a good story. And I, there's this little shop near my apartment that's super cute. One of those just like little boutiques that Mm -hmm. bunch of different things, no, no brand that you recognize, just like cool stuff. And there were these necklaces. They look kind of like an amulet. Like they're these big pieces of porcelain. And there was this little note by the necklaces saying that they're recovered pieces of like broken ceramics from 1800s mansions in New York that like have been emptied out and like then turned into other things or whatever. And these are like I'm recovered, like salivating. That's exactly. Like, we are like, suckers. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, Oh my God. And it's like, this piece is like recovered from this mansion in Brooklyn from 1840 or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, blah, blah, blah. And I sent a picture to my husband. Cause I, I saw these necklaces when his grandmother was here. And I was like, maybe I should, I was looking for a birthday present for her. Mm. I was like, 
oh, maybe I should get this. Like, it has such a beautiful story. And he, like, brought me back down to earth and was like, super beautiful story. The necklace is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? You're right. The necklace is really ugly. And he's like, you're right. you know, you're going to wear that. And no one knows the fucking story. They're like, why do you have a piece of a pot hanging off of your neck with this, yeah. like, ugly silver like really chunky border to it or whatever yeah but i was just attached to this like beautiful thing he's like they literally just convinced you that this trash that they (laughs) (laughs) were sweeping out of a house yes and put in an ugly silver chain it's like something you need to have i was like thank you thank you for for grabbing me like no but like i i I do think that there's something beautiful about like finding beauty in things that seem like trash or whatever but yeah just being vigilant about how stories are spun and like yes this is on a very small scale of like obviously this woman who owns this tiny shop wants to sell things but remembering that like this story is being told in a way to make me spend money right right and like (laughs) i don't know what the price of that necklace was but like would it have felt as believably meaningful and special and like finding beauty in these fallen mansions and the history of our city like would it have felt as special if it was 10 bucks you know yeah exactly like i don't know i don't know i don't know it's so hard one thing i have also been wondering though in terms of not a story but just like completely and utterly unique is i'm wondering if maybe the mind diamond industry will start Well, first of all, I'm wondering if lab-growns will just start becoming expensive. Like, mined diamonds are commonplace, and somehow they're expensive. So, like, what's stopping the lab-growns from just becoming expensive for fun because industry leaders decided to set the price that way? I know that they can continually be... Or if they strategically don't make as many. Right. If suddenly they're just like, oh, we can't because of, I don't know, fossil fuel regulation, they can manufacture any scarcity they want. So I don't mm-hmm. know. But another thing I was wondering in terms of uniqueness was they're like, quote unquote, salt and pepper diamonds, which is just very included diamonds. That means it has a lot of like imperfections and is less, there's just less, quote unquote, clarity to it. I feel like that sounds cool. It is. And they're way cheaper right and now. And each one will be like imperfect in its own way exactly so maybe maybe the rarity will lend itself to that we'll see i guess i mean we need to this is like a time capsule episode that's also a great name salt and pepper diamond i I love that marketing (laughs) it's it's so crazy like oh my god i know i do i'm like so intrigued though like i can't wait when we're just slightly older slightly grayer slightly wrinklier i can't wait to come back to this episode and figure out like were any of our guesses right? And like what I, I'm just so curious where this industry is going. I'm I'm curious too, because I, I do think it's a it's an interesting like relic kind of. Mm-hmm. Like what if it became a thing that everyone's engagement was more specific? Talk about rare. Like if someone really thought about like you and not just what kind of ring you would like, then I wonder if they'll just be like a new like, oh, some someone proposed, like, oh, what did you get for your engagement? Yeah. I think, yeah, I I think that'd be, frankly, beautiful if that's where the industry goes. And moral of the story is consume less and Ellie and I are trendsetters. And that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) 
Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn.